Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join, or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. It's that time of year again, Jono. What time of year is that, Allison? The time of year when everyone talks about how autumn is their favorite season and how sweater weather is so cozy. And I get angry because summer is objectively the best season and fall just means that we're careening towards winter, the objectively worst season. Yeah, I mean, summer is objectively the best season, the way that Saturday is objectively the best day of the week. But subjectively, I prefer spring and Friday, respectively, because they're more about the promise of what might come next than the disappointing reality of what doesn't. Octobers are like Sundays, and I don't mean that in a good way. It's also the time of year when Ontarians, like ourselves, start thinking about heating their homes for winter. And this winter, it looks like that's going to be a more expensive proposition than it has been in the past. Thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and resulting sanctions, the EU is going to have a major shortage of natural gas this winter, a scenario that's causing a global price spike for the commodity. Here at home, the Ontario Energy Board just approved Enbridge's request to hike natural gas rates by 20%, and the utility can apply to hike those prices again in January. While Ontario won't face energy shortages nearly as bad as the EU, The upcoming expensive winter is just the tip of the iceberg of the energy crunch the province is about to face. An energy crunch that, if handled poorly, will eventually result in us no longer having icebergs. Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and the only good things about winter are saunas and steam rooms. I wonder if anyone's ever recorded a podcast live from a Schwitz. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canada Land, and speaking of which, I'm at home recording this underneath a blanket due to COVID. That's another type of Schwitz. (laughs) This is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. (laughs) 
where our power comes from when we turn on the lights and where the hot water comes from when we turn on the taps is a thing that most of us take for granted. I mean, I'd say most Ontarians generally know that we get at least some power from hydroelectricity. That's energy harnessed from moving water, which Ontario has quite a bit of thanks to Niagara Falls. And I'd guess that many people would quite reasonably conclude that hydro is the primary source for power, given, you know, the names of various utility companies, Toronto Hydro, Hydro Ottawa, Hydro One, though I like to also pretend there's a Hydro Two, which primarily generates classical and jazz. But let's just say those names mostly predate the discovery of nuclear fission, let alone the invention of nuclear power generation, as well as the establishment of that one sort of sad wind turbine at Toronto's exhibition place that's gotta be doing something, right? Ontario's electric system is a complex tapestry, a, a, a tholian web as it were, but let's just get out of the way that uh, hydroelectricity accounts for less than a quarter of it. I've been covering the provincial politics beat for over 10 years, and I still don't have like a fully complete grasp of the energy system just because it is so complex. The general gist is that we have three nuclear plants, Darlington, Pickering, and Bruce, which produce the majority of our energy, about 55%. We've also got a fair bit of natural gas in the mix, plus the aforementioned hydro dams, some wind and solar, and a chunk of power we import from Quebec during the hottest days of the summer. Ah, summer. But for some reason, the PCs have decided to cancel that. Natural gas, a fossil fuel, isn't just used to heat homes and heat hot water tanks. That's kind of what we think of it as doing. But it's also used to generate electricity itself, a thing I'm not sure many people realize. The other thing to know is that it's all very expensive, and it's not just what shows up on your electricity bill that costs you money. Even our electricity bills are odd and shine some sunlight on the strangeness of the system. Which perhaps represents the meager 1% that comes from solar. I looked at my bill last night from May. I chose May because that was like before I plugged in my air conditioning, which, you know, messes with the average use, I would say, of energy in my here apartment. And this is how it was broken down. I was charged $11.61 for the electricity I used that month, and then $39.95 in a delivery charge. The delivery fee covers the cost of the transmission lines, which are mostly owned by Hydro One. That's like a Ticketmaster markup. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> and then, well, there's also this thing called the global adjustment charge, which if you have an industrial bill, it would be a line item on, but on residential ones, it's just built into the per kilowatt fee. And this charge covers the cost of building new electricity infrastructure and making sure that producers are, energy producers are paid the same amount, even when people aren't using the same amount of energy. And it's something like 70% of the per kilowatt fee is the global adjustment charge. So my $11.61, say like $8 of that is the global adjustment. So really you're paying $3 for energy and all the rest is the... Uh, the rest is just markup? The, the rest is just markup, yeah. So it's like like supply management of dairy kind of, except instead of ensuring that like dairy farmers can make a living, it's ensuring that energy producers can pull in a predictable profit? Yeah, exactly. You got it. There's also a line item uh, for the Ontario electricity rebate, which is code word for the PC government using the tax base to make bills look lower. The province spends $7 billion a year in tax dollars. So that's like money out of the budget. TVO calculated that it would be like the fourth or sixth biggest ministry uh, if this $6 billion that we, we spend just to subsidize energy rates. And it's not just the, the rebate. There's lots of different ways they do it. 
So it's not, you're not even paying for the electricity you use, but then you're paying all these extra fees, but then also your taxes are being used to just subsidize the whole system and everybody else's bills. Theoretically, like if implemented properly, you can imagine, oh, we're, you know, redistributing wealth to make sure everyone can afford their bills, but that's not how it plays out, is it? No, of course not, because, and, and the financial accountability officer at Queen's Park has pointed this out, the, the rebate disproportionately benefits wealthier Ontarians because they have bigger homes that use more electricity. Mm. So that makes it a really regressive program. It also disincentivizes conservation because, you know, for the one thing, we don't even know what we're actually being billed for. Uh, it's like a little bit harder to make the argument that, you know, your parents might have made when your kid, like, turn off the lights. I mean, we should turn off the lights, but you don't really see it show up um, <laughs> in real life when all of the money is just obfuscated all over the place. And you're not dinged very hard for leaving your TV on or for cooling a four-bedroom house because you're being subsidized to do it. And on top of that, the province spends about a billion dollars a year subsidizing the cost of electricity for industrial operations and manufacturing plants, which is basically an incentive for them not to move to another jurisdiction. If you add the current gas tax cut, which Doug Ford campaigned on in the spring election, and I think it's fair to say that not only do Ontarians not know where their energy comes from, they also have no idea how much it really costs either. So we mentioned off the top that natural gas prices are on the rise. But aside from that, why are we talking about energy on our Doug Ford podcast? In politics, there are some things that governments do because they want to, either because it suits their ideology, will get them votes, or they think it's the right thing to do. Like the PCs planned Highway 413. Doug Ford doesn't have to build the highway, but he wants to for various reasons, so Ontario will get a new highway. There are other things that fall into a government's lap that they would prefer not to deal with at all, or not to get headlines about, but that they have no choice but to handle. The fact that Ontario is running towards an energy shortage is now one of those things. How much more fun would governing be if you only got to do the things you wanted to do and didn't have to deal with the reality of being the institution in charge of the permanently entropic tangle of systems vital to the tenuous functioning of society? During Doug Ford's first term in office, the PCs really did nothing to build up Ontario's energy capacity. And that's coming home to roost because all three of the province's nuclear plants— as we said, it's a, they generate the majority of the power. I think it's 55% of Ontario's electricity comes from these plants. They're all in various states of being or requiring to be refurbished, or in the case of the Pickering nuclear plant, scheduled to be shut down completely. The Darlington plant is being refurbished right now, so some of its reactors are offline and will stay that way for about four more years. Bruce Power, which supplies 30% of Ontario's power alone, it's in the early stages of a decades-long refurbishment process. Bruce Pickering and Darlington all sound like characters in a Shaw play. In the first several months after Ford took office in 2018, his government scrapped a whole bunch of energy conservation programs, removed EV charging stations from Go Transit parking lots, and spent hundreds of millions of dollars canceling a crap ton of green energy projects, which included the actual dismantling of four wind turbines that had already been constructed in Prince Edward County, in the writing of Todd Smith, who since last year has been the energy minister. Who would have guessed that all these programs and initiatives might have existed for a reason? These measures that the government scrapped would have hardly made up for the coming energy crunch, but they surely would have mitigated it even just a bit, as would have commissioning many more such things over the past four years, especially as the cost of green technologies like solar panels has declined. 
Once again, we're watching the government scramble to get on top of a mess that it earlier went out of its way to exacerbate. All the while, Ontario's population and economy have kept growing and requiring more energy. Thanks to the cancellation of energy conservation programs, more of that energy is being wasted than needs to be. And I'll note that this is something uh, PC Energy Minister Todd Smith seems to have noticed two, three weeks ago. He announced that they're going to be basically restoring some of those programs they canceled back in 2019. And I'm glad you mentioned EV chargers too, Jono, because that's actually a big piece of it. At some point in early 2021, Doug Ford went from being the type of guy who ripped up EV charging stations out of Go Transit parking lots with his bare hands. No, no, no. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> to the type of guy who wanted to spend billions of dollars, of taxpayer dollars, in fact, on retooling automotive plants to build EVs. Why he did that isn't really a mystery. The big car manufacturers, they've done their own math and they've said, we want to build EVs now and we either build them here or we build them somewhere else. And the PCs said, oh, okay, here, please. Ford also realized that extracting minerals for EV batteries is also a thing Ontario can do and that being part of that sort of forthcoming supply chain is good business. So the PCs also spent billions of dollars to lure EV battery manufacturing plants to the province. And at least two of those have been announced and are being subsidized and will be up and running in eventually in a couple of years. All this matters, not just because it's an example of Doug Ford completely changing his mind about something, but also because electrification is... One of the main reasons Ontario's energy use is going to go through the roof in the next couple of years. Mm. It takes a lot of electricity to manufacture batteries and to charge millions of electric vehicles, which is assumably what's going to be going on in Ontario in, say, 2025, 2026, 2027. Minister Smith's office told Queen's Park Today's reporter Alan Hale that uh, electric vehicle use is expected to increase the amount of electricity Ontario uses for transportation. So assume now we don't really use very much electricity for transportation, like there might be some electric railways, right? Now we use 900,000 megawatt hours, or will in 2023, so 900,000 megawatt hours. By 2042, that's going to be 26 million megawatt hours. So from 900,000 to 26 million in two decades. If there isn't a giant societal collapse in the meantime. Um, so that's quite an optimistic outlook. Uh, so speaking of which, does the government have a plan for this? Or is it one of those situations where it's less less a plan than a, you know, a loose string of half ideas to which applying the term plan might be generous? There's sort of a plan, yes, but it's it's not a very sophisticated plan. Is it longer or shorter than get it done? Uh, well, it's the energy system, so it has acronyms. It has more acronyms than get it done. <laughs> Basically, the IESO, the Independent Electricity Systems Operator, is going to procure a bunch of energy plants really fast. Like, really, really, really fast. They're going to start giving out contracts in February. The goal is to produce an extra 4,000 megawatts of new energy capacity or roughly enough energy to power the city of Toronto by 2627. Some of the smaller projects are supposed to be up and ready to go in 2.5 years. So in order to do that, these projects are being evaluated on a point system, which doesn't take into account greenhouse gas emissions. 
And companies that are applying to build the plants don't have to get municipal buy-in in advance. That's really likely to get messy because <laughs> the PCs also announced just under two weeks ago that about one third of this procurement can be for new natural gas plants. So there's going to be a lot of political considerations going on about where these new natural gas plants will go since the placement of such plants basically brought down former Premier Dalton McGuinty and the cover up over their cancellation sent his chief of staff to prison. Oh, yeah. If the Ford government wanted to, it could punish an MPP or an opposition party or a rogue mayor that they're angry with by putting a gas plant in their riding. I have no idea if the PCs will actually do that, but that's the kind of political ammo we're working with here. Surely they're above that. But on the less bullshit politics side of the equation, it's also going to increase greenhouse gas emissions by 2 to 4%. And the government's response is that we got to do it because anything less will cause brownouts and hurt businesses. So end of discussion. As for the Pickering nuclear plant, which supplies something like 14% of the electricity in the province, the government has kept kicking its closure down the road, repeatedly asking for more time to get their act together, not unlike me working on this script. Following refurbishment work that already bought the plant another decade of operation, it was supposed to shut down at the end of 2024. Then in 2020, the government extended that another year through 2025. That was still the plan as of late August, when Todd Smith, the energy minister, declared in response to a friendly question period question, Mr. Speaker, our government has a plan in place. We've extended the Pickering nuclear facility to 2025. We have a plan in place for when the Pickering facility is no longer operating, Mr. Speaker. And we have a plan to power this province when it comes to electrification. By a month later, late September, however. Today, I'm very pleased to announce that our government is supporting OPG's continued safe operation of Pickering nuclear generating station through September 2026. Sometimes plans are not only not plans, they're also not really a string of half-thoughted ideas so much as a succession of, of gut feelings of uh, from moment to moment such that this must be the right thing to do because it feels right. Even calling it a half-plan feels generous. More like a hunch, more like an inclination, maybe an intuition. They also announced a feasibility study to see if the plant could be refurbished again to keep going for another 30 years. So the decision will be made by the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, which is the federal agency in charge of making sure this stuff is safe. Yeah, I just want to add that I love that they're extending the life of the plant right up until the year the government is up for re-election. We'll figure it out later or somebody else's problem. The Nuclear Safety Commission was also the entity that in 2014 ordered Ontario Power Generation, that's the provincial entity, to proactively distribute potassium iodide tablets to all homes and businesses within a 10-kilometer radius of a nuclear generating station. That was more about best practices learned uh, from the Fukushima disaster than from any new concern around Ontario's plants, but I don't know, it's not, not notable that one of our main sources of electricity is such that pretty much everyone in Durham region has to keep special pills on hand to reduce the risk of thyroid cancer should something go wrong. And of course, that goes for Northeast Scarborough as well, including the Toronto Zoo, which does have, have the tablets on hand, though my quick Googling was unable to determine whether there's a protocol for administering them to the, the animals. Uh, and of course, though, fun, fun fact, anyone within 50 kilometers of a nuclear station, which in includes the whole city of Toronto, most of York Region, a bit of Mississauga and Brampton, uh, can go to preparetobesafe.ca and get some of those potassium iodide pills mailed to you for free. I put my order in a couple weeks ago, but they have not yet arrived. 
Yeah, I grew up in Ajax, so close to the Pickering plant. I don't think it was not in the radius where you had to have them in your home, but we were close enough that they had to have them in the schools. So like part of like going back to school in September was getting a form signed by your parents every year that should it be needed, we would be, you you know, as a student, you were allowed to take one of the iodine tablets that were in the principal's office, which like didn't feel weird at the time. But anytime I've explained this to people as an adult, they've really given me strange, strange looks. I'm glad your school in Ajax was prepared for the possibility of thyroid cancer. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, all this points to the obvious question of whether it's safe to have an aging nuclear facility operating in unusually close proximity to a large urban center. Certainly, the relevant authorities reliably respond with a resounding yes. But enough questions have been raised about some of the specifics that it should be more like, yes. Allison, you brought to my attention a rather science-dense Globe report by Matthew McLaren from last spring. Canada's nuclear regulator overlooked dubious data when renewing Pickering Plant's license documents show. The overall impression that piece gives is that when it comes to safely operating an aging nuclear reactor with a unique Canadian design, there's more guesswork and making it up as you go along than you'd expect. Lots of diligence, certainly, but also less precision than you'd maybe think or hope. So the type of reactor that we use in Canada is called the CANDU, C-A-N-D-U, which stands for Canada Deuterium Uranium. It involves a system of pressure tubes that are supposed to last around 30 years. When the tubes in Quebec's Gentilly 2 nuclear facility hit their limit about a decade ago, Hydro-Quebec decided to shut the whole thing down. At the time, their CEO said he'd no more operate Gentilly 2 beyond 210,000 hours than he'd climb onto an airplane that didn't have permits or meet standards. Pickering's can-do tubes also started hitting the 30-year mark around a decade ago, but as the The Globe reported, Ontario Power Generation shrugged off the limit as arbitrary, saying it was based on primitive estimates for what the can-do could do. So they use predictive modeling, where they take samples from a handful of the 380 tubes in each reactor, and they use that to extrapolate how all the tubes are doing. The problem is that, well, there, there are physical properties at play that aren't fully understood, which puts limits on the accuracy of any predictive models. And beyond that caveat, the data on which the models are built isn't always the most solid necessarily. On a couple occasions, data sent to the federal regulator suggested that the amount of deuterium in the tubes had gone down over time. And without getting into what deuterium is or how it works, suffice it to say that that's supposed to be impossible. The amount can only ever go up, not down. So uh, OPG, that's Ontario Power Generation, eventually determined that someone had improperly calibrated a measurement device. In general, I would like to say I'm confident that the people who work in Ontario's nuclear sector are very skilled and that I think the plants are safe and that nuclear is good and that everything is going to be okay. I mean, I think, you know, the more people think about nuclear, you know, we get wigged out about it. But I think we also have to remember that it's been the main source of electricity if you've lived in Ontario your entire life. I don't know. 
I don't think we want to worry about it too much, but no, no, I think no, no. you. It's also obviously very important to be careful and not push the limits of such a pickering plant uh, or, or any of the plants more than we have to. And we should have contingency plans because the government collects billions and billions of dollars every year and it could be using that money for things that would avoid such crises or, or you know, you know where I'm going with this. Well, hopefully I'll get my pill soon, at least. Yeah, there you go. At least th- that's in the budget. So in general, I'm I'm okay with this. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Definitely sound like you're trying to convince yourself. I know. <laughs> yeah. And then I also think about how they sent out that accidental emergency alert about the Pickering plant in January 2020. And yeah, it becomes a little more up in the air than I would prefer. Which is something I totally, totally forgot about. It was like 7.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, which was 20 minutes before sunrise that day. So like, I think the whole thing had been long cleared up by the time I got out of bed. Yeah, I remember waking up and (laughs) hearing it and looking at my phone and and, like have such like broken reporter brain. And my first thought was, oh, man, we're going to have to write about this (laughs) and then go back to sleep. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the message said in part. An incident was reported at the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station. There has been no abnormal release of radioactivity from the station, and emergency staff are responding to the situation. People near the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station do not need to take any protective actions at this time, um, with certain letters, certain words in all caps, um, them perhaps not quite understanding that that doesn't necessarily increase trust in their assurances. <laughs> no. There's been no abnormal release of radioactive. Like, well, was someone suggesting that there had been? Oh, my goodness. So if I'd been awake, I'd probably just, yeah, as you said, your porter brain going, I probably would have just tweeted out clips from the newsroom, not the, the Aaron Sorkin HBO one, but the uh, the Ken Finkelman CBC's comedy from the 90s and mid-2000s, in which, like, the first season concludes with the three-parter in which the dealing with a nuclear meltdown at the, the Pickering plant and how are they going to cover it? This scene where they're trying to come up with clever titles for, for coverage of it. Uh, Chernobyl North. It's a play on Toronto. It's Hollywood North. Chernobyl North. I know it doesn't work because Chernobyl is probably north of Toronto, but I... Just... We'll keep working on it. It's a terrific show. A really, really, really terrific show. It's too bad the pandemic happened like two months after that or else that emergency alert could have gotten a Dougie Award. The other nuclear thing we'd be remiss not to mention are small modular reactors or SMRs. They're the only energy thing, honestly, the PCs actually did talk about during their first term and they still won't shut up about them. Uh, The energy minister was in... Poland and the Czech Republic last week, like signing weird deals to do with them. Even though (laughs) in the real world, these are not things that actually exist. So what are SMRs? Unlike ASMR, which is, uh, would involve me uh, whispering and weirdly caressing the microphone in front of me, these are instead small, basically miniature nuclear reactors whose theoretical appeal is that they can be built on an assembly line and, you know, shipped out where needed as opposed to being assembled on site as part of a, you know, a gigantic facility meant to power a whole region. So for the past decade or two, maybe a bit longer, all the usual nuclear and aerospace conglomerates have been crawling all over each other to make this a reality, hyping it as a kind of world-changing technology. 
you know, these small modular reactors could potentially be broadly useful, but that transformative potential has very likely been oversold. Yeah, I mean, there's a study by Stanford and UBC professors that was just published this past spring in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is one of those fun things to say. That study found that these SMRs are likely to produce far more and far more volatile nuclear waste than even full-size reactors. And, you know, certainly Russia's invasion of Ukraine is likely to have a lot of countries thinking twice about, you know, whether it makes sense to have a whole lot of little nuclear reactors scattered about, each of which is, a, you know, potential target in a conflict. Your point that what they would be good at is that they can move all over the place and be like put in places instead of building a big facility to power an entire region. What Ontario needs is big facility to power an entire region, <laughs> right? Like we're, it's the GTA that needs all of this electricity, it doesn't need to be sprinkled all around in tiny versions. So for the actual crunch we're talking about, energy crunch we're talking about, a bunch of small reactors is not better. I mean, I don't know, it would obviously be nice to have some innovation in the world that does something useful. But I guess I'm like comparing this to the hyperloop in my mind, it, it feels very far off and just not something I'm confident is actually going to exist anytime soon. Like that's despite the PCs saying like, we are building one right now. I don't know. I'm like the Hyperloop. I do think it, it's something that will exist, just not at any scale to make much of a difference to anything. And of course there is the problem with nuclear waste that you nodded to. Uh, and Canada Land's Monday show has had a few really good episodes on this year namely about the plan to build a deep earth repository that will store nuclear waste for thousands of years somewhere in Ontario and how mad people are who live near the proposed sites. If SMRs end up all over the place and a potential use case uh, that's been floated for them is to put them on remote First Nations, for example, then all of a sudden nuclear waste is located in many more locations all around and has to be transported on a lot more routes, dealing with nuclear waste. Like we're not even good at that very really yet. Like there's stopgap no. measures and it's fine, but like we don't have a full handle on it. It's just going to make it even more complicated. Yeah. I mean, as preferable as it is to have an energy source that doesn't put carbon into the, into the atmosphere, it's you know less than ideal deal to have something that, you know, does require the development of signage that is supposed to clearly indicate to a post-human civilization, do not go in here, this will probably destroy you. Uh, what do you think the possible outcomes are? Like, what will what, what all this actually, the supply crunch actually mean? I think we should say, like, the, the supply crunch that the PCs are admitting to happening is going to be in 2025. Soon, soon. Lots of things happening soon. <laughs> So there's the possibility that the IESO's speedy little plan to procure 4,000 megawatts of energy super fast doesn't work. I mean, even in documents that were alluding to the, like, about the procurement process, OPG, I believe, basically said that this is too fast. I don't think it's going to work. Um, so yeah, good, goodness knows, yeah, the, the aggressive uh, awarding of lots and lots of very valuable contracts to a desperate um, customer never really goes wrong, does it? Right, absolutely, yeah. That doesn't get off the ground as fast as uh, it's supposed to. Um, and all of a sudden it's 2026 and Pickering Nuclear is turned off and there's not enough energy capacity to keep the province running smoothly. I think 
that's, I mean, they probably just extend the plant longer, but like how much notice do they need for that? I don't know. I think those are definitely things we're going to be running up against. And, you know, while the energy minister signaled the other week that this round of new gas plants will be the last round of new gas plants built in Ontario, I think there's a possibility it doesn't go that way and that we find ourselves in a world where we're using fossil fuels to charge millions of electric SUVs so they can drive around on superhighways. And the electric vehicle boom is revealed to be just another cash and resource extraction grab rather than, you know, a real effort towards renewable energy and lower emissions. Are you telling me, Allison, that capitalism won't in fact rescue us from itself? <sighs> I'm having the big side of this episode. <laughs> We started off this episode by talking about the invasion of Ukraine and the resulting energy shortages in Europe. And this is something foreign policy columnist Adam Tooze, he said this recently on an episode of his podcast called Ones and Twos. Such a, such a good name. Such a, good a great name. <laughs> he said one of the big tragedies to come out of the ground war in Europe is that EU countries, which had been on a accelerated energy transition plan since 2020 that was, you know, really seemed set to, to make progress for a green energy transition, you know, within a decade or two, they're now being forced backwards into investing tens of billions into fossil fuel infrastructure. And before Doug Ford took office in Ontario, the province was on a similar trajectory to the EU. We had a cap and trade program and a growing green energy sector. And I mean, at least we're not going backwards to coal, but building new natural gas plants, you know, it's still kind of going backwards. Yeah, I mean, they, they have a whole war to blame for the backtracking on renewables and unwinding their progress on uh, having more sustainable energy, energy supply. And we have Doug Ford. And now it's time for Foreseeable Disaster of the Month. What's your foreseeable disaster, Jono? Well, my foreseeable disaster is one which we already foresaw last month, but, but which we have a little bit more in the way of detail now. So we talk, spent last month's episode talking about Stronger Mayors Building Homes Act, or some combination of, of, of those words, uh, which, you know, basically takes power away from the city councils of Toronto and Ottawa and hands them to their respective mayors. Now, a big component of those laws or about those the new mayoral new powers vested in the mayor are that they can act with a remarkable amount of virtually unilateral authority in order to implement policies consistent with certain provincial priorities uh, at the time we only had a vague understanding of what those priorities would be though we assumed it would be broad and problematic now we have a much better idea the provincial government put out uh, for comment the proposed regulations, and so we know what the draft wording of these provincial priorities is now. The wording may change a little bit, but what they have is, one, building 1.5 million new residential units by 2031, and two, the construction and maintenance of infrastructure to support accelerated supply and availability of housing, including, but not limited to, transit, roads, utilities, and servicing. I take that to mean basically everything. I mean, there's very little, you actually have to kind of think about like, what does the city do that doesn't involve the construction or maintenance of infrastructure to support housing in some way? I mean, basically, that's, 
you know, they phrase it as expansively as they could, which is not surprising, but it is really fun and fun and funny to see how they uh, tried to actually do that such that, yeah, basically everything, if you could vaguely say that something supports the development of housing or it is connected to, you know, people living somehow, yeah, yeah, yeah the mayor can ram that through. That is that is a provincial priority. Do you think it means they'll set up a ferry to the island from Sunnyside Beach so that it can get there easier? I don't know. Would they count that as transit? Probably not. No, no, it won't, this won't mean anything good. <laughs> Basically, it's everything. It's everything. What is your foreseeable disaster, Allison? My foreseeable disaster is that the Globe and Mail reported last week that the province has quietly approved completely driverless trucks to uh, cruise around Ontario streets. When the Globe asked them about this, the, the trucks are being run by Loblaw, taking groceries from a warehouse to a grocery store, basically. They were operating as part of a private project with like a safety driver in them. But since August, there's no driver. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the province just didn't tell anybody, which I think is so crazy. Like, how do you do that and not tell anybody? I'm honestly aghast. Queen's Park Today, actually, we've known that they've been piloting this stuff for a while. I assigned our reporter, Alan, back in June to try to see, like, what's the status of these pilot projects? Who's involved? How many cars are on the road? What are they doing? And actually, in part, it's because I went on vacation and went to San Francisco and saw these self-driving cars that like were test cars all over the place and I was like Ontario's doing this but like what's actually going on anyways we got nowhere we didn't write a story about it because we got nowhere the like Ministry of Transportation wouldn't tell us a damn thing they basically told us to like go FOI it basically a fuck off yeah go, yeah go exactly yeah. and that's what they told the globe too and what they told uh reporters who asked questions last week so for whatever reason they're just keeping this so secret this one really blew my mind they just took out the drivers and there's just drive like empty cars, empty trucks driving around and they didn't tell anybody? <laughs> like, that's crazy. I mean, okay, so what happens also if one of these driverless cars gets in an accident with a pedestrian or a cyclist or another car? Like, what are the systems in place for this? We have no idea. Well, you just, you just have a Wyatt. And that was Wag the Dog, a show about SMRs. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby, and hosting shortcuts occasionally, including next week. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. Our producer is Katie Lore, our production coordinator is Andre Pru, and our theme music is remixed by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener-supported. Go to wagthedog.com to help us keep this podcast going. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.